Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our discussion this afternoon is Adam's Dominion. Adam's Dominion. Now, uh, it, it depends which Adam it is as to which dominion it is. We're going to find out now uh, a little bit about some of the mechanics uh, of the plan of salvation and uh, the great controversy. There are certain rules in this great controversy. There are rules to the game, so to speak. And uh, understanding that and understanding uh, some of these things is actually important for us because it helps us exercise our faith more intelligently and more firmly. That's why God has revealed some of these details to us. There's a whole science to the plan of salvation. It's, it's a genius plan. We'll be studying it in detail uh, throughout eternity, but God has already revealed some things, some details about it, and it's important for us to understand some of some of these details because you know we're talking about a revival, right? And a revival uh, has to do with having a firmer, deeper, and more intelligent faith as well to be revived. And so this is what we're hoping to achieve as we look at some of these mechanics, some of these rules uh, in this great controversy. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, I don't have any slides, so your, your PowerPoint is in your hand, the Bible. And uh, we're going to open the Bible. If you have your Bible, we can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. God's plan of creation involved giving to man something in Genesis 1 and verse 26 is what we will read. Genesis 1 and verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. God decided to make man in his image, but he also decided to give man a gift. He decided to make man have dominion. Dominion means rulership or kingship. Uh, man would have kingly authority over the earth. It would be like a small scale picture of what heaven is like. God is the king of the universe. And so God made man in his image. And so he makes man the king of the earth. And he informed Adam and Eve of this plan when he told them, you know, to be fruitful, multiply. And he also told them to have dominion. This dominion is what we're going to explore a little bit in detail today. Because when God gave man dominion, Kingship and rulership, it meant something. And there has been a battle over dominion in this great controversy. Uh, but when God gave to man dominion, he wasn't just giving it to Adam. Adam is the representative of the race, but uh, Adam is also the name of humanity. We see that in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 2. And this will just help us appreciate the connection between Adam and those who are children of Adam. Genesis 5, 2, it says here, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. So Adam is the name of both the male and the female. All the human beings that were in existence at that time were called Adam. So Adam is the name of the race. We're called children of Adam. But Adam is also more commonly known as the proper name of the first human. When we say Adam, most likely we will think of the first man. But it's important to keep in mind the connection that we are all Adam as well. So what was given to Adam is given also to us. And therefore also what Adam loses is lost by all of us. The connection is important. And this is why when Satan was trying to bring down uh, or bring about the fall of mankind, all he had to do was get the heads of humanity, Adam, the person Adam, to fall. And in Adam's fall, we are all involved as well. It affects all of us. It doesn't just affect him individually. Why? Because he was a head. He was a representative because he was the first man. So he was given this dominion. Now, in, uh, in Peter, we're told, we don't have to turn there, but uh, when... Uh, Adam and Eve were overcome by the enemy. The scripture tells us of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought into bondage. When man was overcome by Satan, through the deception of Satan, Adam and Eve were brought into bondage. 
Now it's interesting that when uh, when man fell, the fall of humanity is due to what Adam did, not what Eve did. You know, sometimes uh, people discuss whose fault was it, the man or the woman, right? It was uh, the woman who started it, but the fall of the race did not come about because of what the woman did. It came about because of what man did. When Adam ate is when humanity fell, because Adam was the representative, he was the head. And that was the devil's plan to use Eve to get to Adam and get the whole race. And that's exactly what happened. Man came into bondage and the dominion of man now passed into the hands of Satan. He had captured man and he took over the dominion of man. Interesting development. Very, very interesting development. So now, no longer is Adam holding authority and dominion. That now is assumed by the one who conquered Adam, Satan. Satan now becomes the new representative for earth or for humanity. This position was handed to him by Adam himself when he ate from the tree. That's what happened. This is a disastrous development. An absolute disaster. And uh, we see that actually uh, portrayed in the gospel. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. What are the implications and the ramifications of that for us today? That's what I want to find out. Luke chapter 4. Jesus here is in the wilderness of temptation with the devil. And notice what the devil tells him here. Luke 4, verse 5 and 6. Luke chapter 4, reading from verse 5. And the devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, excuse me, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Was the devil saying something true or false here? When he says here, all these things, all the kingdoms of the world, the glory of them, all these things, he says, they were delivered unto him. Who were they delivered unto him by? By Adam. When Adam ate from that tree, he was conquered by Satan. Satan now assumed the position of Adam, the rights that Adam had to have dominion. And he claims Adam's dominion now as his dominion since he conquered Adam. And he makes or tries to make this deal, this bargain with Christ. He says, if you acknowledge my authority, I'll share with you what I have. Of course, Christ uh, referred him to God and he, he did not, uh, he did no such thing. But uh, this development was, like I said, quite a tragedy. And uh, we have to keep in mind that when we talk about uh, Satan now having the right of being representative and having dominion, you have to remember when God made Adam to rule on the earth, Adam was not to rule independent of God, to just run the show and do whatever he, want, uh, he wanted. You know, uh, God was still God. God has supreme authority as the ruler of the universe. Adam would rule under God in his dominion, kind of like a vice regent or, you know, uh, he was in charge of this part of the kingdom. But it didn't mean that he could do anything he liked. So when Satan takes over Adam's position, it doesn't mean that he can just do whatever he wants. God is still God. He's in charge. But there is a certain jurisdiction now that the devil has claimed as a result of what Adam has done that allows him some legal rightful rule and he exercises that as much as he can. And there are a number of examples that we want to see uh, you know, that portray or that illustrate that for us. This is the means whereby Satan became the God of this world. You know, in scriptures, it refers to Satan as the God of this world. How did that happen? It happened all the way there in the beginning. When this world, in Adam's choice, made a decision to join Satan. Satan became the God of this world. So he has this usurped dominion. Now, when... Uh, when Satan was cast out of heaven, 
I just want to backtrack here a little bit, just so we can see things a little bit in, in their perspective. When Satan was cast out of heaven with his angels, right? Before the fall of Adam, obviously. Uh, when that happened, when Satan was cast out with his angels, that was a final decision. Meaning, maybe I should ask you this question. Could Satan gain access back to heaven after he was cast out? The answer is no. It was permanent. Him and his angels, they were cast out. That was it. He had lost his place in heaven. He had rebelled. He had uh, no interest in God's appeals of mercy uh, or anything like that. And so there was a permanent break. He's cast out with his angels. And uh, he lost his position, of course, in heaven. He was one of the covering cherubs. We understand he no longer could gain access to heaven. But then something changed. Let's go to the book of Job, chapter 1. And we see here this development. Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And here we have the story. You might be quite familiar with the story where we're told in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comes thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Something has changed. One day, there is this meeting in heaven. All the angels, the sons of God are there and maybe even representatives of other worlds. And who shows up in this meeting? Satan shows up. And God asks him, not because he is uninformed or unaware, but he asks him for the purpose of the record so we can understand a little bit what's going on. Where did you come from? Or in other words, who do you represent? What right do you have to be here? You with me? I says, well, from earth. That's mine. And what happened here, brothers and sisters, is when Satan had fallen, was cast out of heaven with his angels and could no longer access heaven, because of what Adam had done, it now gave Satan a right to enter heaven as the representative of this world. That position should have been filled by Adam. But he was defeated. He was captured by Satan. And so Satan goes in his stead. And so it was quite a tragedy for the human race because we know why he went to heaven in that particular instance. To, he, his purpose was to bring trouble and heartache on Job. Remember the story? And he went accusing Job of all kinds of false motives, of serving God. He says, if you just do this or do that. And God allowed Satan to do certain things with limitations. Which shows us that Satan's uh, rule is not totally independent. He can't just do whatever he wants. None of us would be here if he, if he just did whatever he wants. There is, there is a God in heaven, and there are limits on what Satan can do, but he pushes those limits. And the story of Job is a very clear illustration of that. It's also an illustration of Satan's work as the representative of humanity. It is to accuse, it is to bring heartache and trouble to human beings. And he would go to heaven, and he would probably you not know, come at the gate, and the angels would now have to let him in. Because he's the new representative of, of earth. What a tragedy for the human race. What an absolute tragedy. Now we have a few instances in the scriptures where we have an insight into the work of Satan in heaven and what he was doing there for those he represented. You can't, you can't get a worse representative, okay? He's called the accuser of the brethren in the scriptures. That's a tragedy. This is the the position that the human race finds, found itself in as a result of what Adam had done. And years on, of course, the story of Job is many years removed from the Garden of Eden and the, the fall of mankind. Let's look at another instance, what the accuser does. Let's go to Jude chapter 1. Jude is just, in the, just before the book of Revelation. Jude chapter 1 and verse 9. There's only one chapter there. So Jude 9 or Jude 1, 9. And this story here is a, is a very brief record, but it also gives us a little bit of an insight as to the work of this un, 
this usurper, the devil. Jude 1.9, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. What was happening here? Christ came to resurrect Moses. The devil resists that and disputes that, and he basically says, you have no right to do that. Correct? What gave Satan the right to try and contest the resurrection of Moses? It's because he was the ruler of this world. He had gained this dominion through the deception he deceived Adam. So in essence, what Christ was doing, he was coming to resurrect Moses. And keep in mind, this resurrection is very significant. This is the very first resurrection in the entire history of the universe, as far as we are aware. From, this, from, from the fall of man, all the way to Moses, when people would die, they would just be dead. For the very first time ever now, Moses is dead. Christ comes to resurrect him. He's about to raise someone from the dead for the very first time. See, up until the, that time, Satan thought, well, all those who died belong to him permanently. That's it. They are his lawful captives. So Christ comes to raise Moses, and the devil basically says, you have no right to do that. He belongs to me. What do you think you're doing? This is what the contest was about. And Christ, of course, uh, refers him to the Father. And because of what Christ would do, he resurrects Moses because of the promise of what he would one day do. And he takes him to heaven. So don't, don't, uh, you know, don't uh, miss that point and the importance of that. So Satan's work as our representative is to also resist and try and block any blessing that God wishes to bestow upon us. Because after all, you know, the Bible does say the wages of sin is death. So Satan's like, that's what you said. The dead belong to me. You have no right to them. This is what this contest was about. There's another story as well, another puzzling one. Let's go to 1 Kings. We'll look at this story. This story has puzzled a lot of people, actually. 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings 22. And here we find, well, before we read the story, let me give you a little bit of background. First Kings chapter 22 is where we're going. But here we find King Ahab, king of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and King Jehoshaphat. And they uh, agree together to go and uh, attack the enemy. And uh, Jehoshaphat commits a little bit too quickly. So he decides to, say, uh, to ask, hey, isn't there a prophet here that maybe should give us some counsel? So Ahab some, had some hired uh, prophets on his payroll. So he said, yeah, sure, we've got plenty of prophets. So they came and they said to the king, go, everything's well. Well, Jehoshaphat had a little bit more discernment than that. He says, look, isn't there a prophet of the Lord here? Like a, a real one? And Ahab, Ahab says, yes, there is one, but I hate him. Because he doesn't speak, prophesy, he only prophesies evil towards me. He doesn't say good things. So Joshua said, no, no, bring, bring the prophet. Let's hear what God has to say about that. And so this is what was happening. So the prophet comes and the prophet relays to the king, to King Ahab, this vision that he has seen. And it begins in verse 19 is where we want to focus on. Verse 19, 1 Kings 22. And he said, hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on, on, the, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who shall persuade Ahab? that he may go up to fall, and fall at Ramoth Gilead. And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go, go forth, and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. Remember that story? You ever been puzzled by this story? The puzzling part is, how can the Lord put a lying spirit in someone? Jesus said, who is the father of lies? Satan. Satan. So how can the Lord be behaving like Satan, it's a puzzling story. So what was happening here? This is a similar inst uh, incident, a similar event to what we see in the book of Job. There was another meeting, and the angels were present, and who shows up? Satan. 
He is that spirit that basically went there and said, Ahab is not listening to you. Give him to me. Let me have a go. And God basically said, like he did with the, in Job's story, okay, you can. He's not listening to me. And so it was Satan who was permitted to be the lying spirit in the mouth of all these false prophets. Not because God hired Satan to do the job for him. Satan asked for that because he's saying he's not listening to you. I will go and deceive Just like he did in the story of Job. Here we see another incident or another example of Satan going to heaven as in these meetings as the representative of humanity to bring heartache and destruction. In this story, of course, as a result of uh, what Satan said through these false prophets, King Ahab went to the battle and he died that day. That evening he was dead. That spirit is none other than Satan. This helps us understand a little bit of where it says in the New Testament, where God says that those who do not love the truth, God sends them a strong delusion. Does God, that they should believe a lie, that's exactly right. Does God deceive people? Those people that don't like the truth, does God say, okay, well, I'm going to deceive you now. No, it's, it is because you're not listening to God. Now you're opening up yourself for the, the lying spirit to delude you. And Satan says, well, they're not listening to you. Let me have a go. And God says, okay, they're not listening to me. God will not force his way. This is what it means. God permits that. And we see that in the story of Job. We see that in the story of Ahab. And this helps us understand this uh, verse in the New Testament. Does that make sense? And so this interplay and this uh, sometimes legal battle as to jurisdictions in the great controversy came about. And Satan usurped that right because of what Adam had done. It was a big disaster what happened. And for thousands of years, brothers and sisters, this was the case for the human race. And, every, and, and we only have a handful of instances. Uh, these are not the only times that Satan went to heaven to cause mischief or, or heartache to some uh, poor you know, believer on earth. This just gives us an insight that this is something that did happen. And every time Satan would go there and the angels would have to let him in and he would saunter into God's presence and, and the angels would be on, who's he got on his list today? And it would be some brother such and such or sister such and such. And he would accuse and this and let me do this and they're not listening. You get the picture, right? For 4,000 years, this was the case. 4,000 years of earth's history. Satan was exercised, making the most of his uh, usurped, uh, the position he had usurped from Adam. And then we have this beautiful promise. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Things would not always remain that way because there was a plan of salvation. The plan of salvation would deal with this particular problem in a very legal way, in a very rightful way. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 and 47. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. And in verse 47, we're told who the last Adam is. The first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Jesus Christ, the Lord from heaven, is referred to as the last Adam or the second Adam. What's the significance of that title? You ever thought about that? Why is he called the second Adam? Okay, the new ruler. Very good point. That's exactly right. Adam's position was one of representation and rulership. But not only was it his position, his name also refers to all his children that would come from him. The male and the female were called Adam. Here Christ is called the last Adam or the second Adam in that he would do a work and fill a position similar to what Adam filled. But also that he would have children. He would be the father of children. Not biological children. That's all I'm talking about. But he would be the father of children who would be born in his family by what was called in the New Testament, the new birth. They would become his children. In essence, they, this last Adam, this Adam would also be the name of all of his family. A new race, so to speak. And so this term, 
Adam, last Adam, is in direct reference to Christ's humanity. There is a verse in the, in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, which says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Familiar with that verse? And uh, this is a, a prophecy about the Messiah. And it says, his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. A lot of people say, see here, it says Everlasting Father, and Christ is called that. And they think this verse has something to do with the Trinity, maybe. <laughs> that verse has absolutely nothing to do with the Trinity. That verse is a messianic prophecy about what Christ would accomplish as the second end. These are prophetic titles that apply to him, and he will be called these titles as a human being, as the second Adam. As the second Adam, he would be our everlasting father. He would have children who would be born in his image when they are born again. That's what that verse is dealing with. So it's in the context of the plan of salvation. And that's what the uh, last Adam or the second Adam is all about. Notice what else is prophesied in Micah chapter 4. Let's go to the Old Testament. Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4 and verse 8. Micah chapter 4 and verse 8. And here the prophet says, And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, and the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. What's that talking about? It's a prophecy about the return of something. Something that's called the first dominion. What's that? Rulership to Israel, but on a larger scale, the dominion that was lost by Adam, that he had lost and relinquished to Lucifer or Satan, would be restored. And this is part of the work of the last or second Adam. He would restore that first dominion. He would win it back rightfully from Satan. That's another reason why Christ actually had to become a human being, had to become one of us. In order for humanity to be able to gain again, what God had gave, given to Adam and Adam lost, it had to be a human being who would wrest it from the hands of Satan, rightfully. You know, a lot of people say, well, why did Christ have to come as, as a man? You know, he could have come as the son of God, as, as he was. He could have come in any other, uh, you know, form. He came as a man because it was man that was captive of Satan. So it had to be one of us to break the chains of Satan. If he had defeated Satan as an angel or as a son of God, well, that's good, but it doesn't help humanity. We still remain captives. One of the captives has to defeat the tyrant and rightfully release the prisoners. This is what the second Adam is all about. It's an absolutely beautiful picture that Christ would condescend to be one of us in order to win back what man had lost. And part of that would be this first dominion that would return. That's why the scripture says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. It was God's son who came to earth. It wasn't that uh, Christ became God's son when he became a man. You know, some people get that a little bit confused. When Christ became a man, he became a son of man. He became one of us. He wasn't that before. He already was the son of God before he came. That's actually what qualified him. And that's why he's the only one who could come. Nobody else could come. None of the angels or any other beings. Because only the son of God knew the father best. Only the son of God could give life to dead humanity. And he took on our form. He took on humanity. You know, just as an outward form. He became one of us. And when he became one of us, he became the son of man. God had a son, and his son now became one of us. That's why he's referred to as son of God and son of man. And just like the way that he became the son of man was very real. He had to be born like us, just like all of us were born. He was born like one, as one of us. And that's why his, we have no doubt about his humanity. In like manner, his divinity or his sonship to his father is not in doubt. It's not a metaphor or a symbol. It is just as real and literal as his birth as a man. It's not like this is a symbol or this is just a title. Because he wasn't a son of man just as a symbol or a title. He really was a human being. We have his genealogy on record. In Hebrews chapter 2, it also gives us a reason. It spells out this reason. 
why he came as one of us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Well, why is that? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. See why Christ had to be one of us? So that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. To experience death and to go into the domain of Satan, the domain of death, he had to be one of us. And this is why he had to die. Because this is where we were. In death. The wages of sin is? Is death. So he came to the place where we were. To this, he had to die. In order to claim that dominion as his. And deliver those who had died in the past. And in anticipation of his work. He went and resurrected Moses all the way back then. Based on what he promised he would do down the line. And this is why the devil basically had some kind of right to say, whoa, what do you think you're doing? He belongs to me. And as far as I know, you haven't defeated me yet. I have dominion still. This was the strength of his argument. Now Christ, according to this prophecy, when we know Christ has come and has died, now this is a reality. And you see that demonstrated because, brothers and sisters, when Christ died and rose again, he made death now come under his dominion. You realize that? What was the dominion of Satan, now Christ gained. And he indicates that when he says to John, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and have what? The keys of hell, that's a grave, and death. He earned the right to obtain from Satan the keys of hell and of death. In other words, now he has the right to open the doors of death, the prison doors. It's a metaphor, right? There are no literal keys. It's a metaphor. He has the right to open up or resurrect anyone who had died. And the devil doesn't object anymore. When Christ rose from the grave, actually, we're told that many graves of the saints opened and they rose. You don't see the devil contesting now with each one. What do you think you're doing? Why are you doing? That's it. It's done. Christ has defeated Satan. He has gained dominion over even the realm of death as a man. And that's what really makes it very impacting. Now, that's important for us to understand. That's important for us to remember in the great controversy. It just might revive us. Okay? Now, I know it's afternoon, and you're probably not feeling very revived right now. But this is why we want to have a revival, okay? Uh, not just a spiritual one, a physical one as well. Uh, let's see what uh, Jesus says. Well, before we see Jesus, says, let's go to Matthew 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 16. Notice how this is described. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. This morning we're talking about light, and that Jesus has the light of life, correct? Who are these people that sat in darkness? That's a reference to humanity, everybody. Satan's rule is the rule, he's, you know, he's called the prince of this, uh, or at least the, also, we refer to him also as the prince of darkness, the rule of darkness. God is light, in him is no darkness at all. Satan is the antithesis of that. And so darkness is a symbol for the opposite of what God is. It's also a symbol of death. It talks about it as the reign, uh, the, sorry, the region and shadow of death. This is the rule of Satan. In other words, the people who were under the rulership of Satan, and in bondage to Satan's dominion. Now something was about to change. Light is coming. Light is sprung up. That light, of course, refers to none other than Christ. This was a contest of dominions. Who would win? And the winner takes all. That's what it was. That's what it was. Who was going to win? Christ had to be one of us. He had to take on Satan as a human being. And so now Satan and Christ meet face to face again. But this time, Christ is at a great disadvantage. You realize that? 
he took on an inferior form. He didn't even take on the form of an angel, but it says in scriptures he was made even lower than the angels. And now he's going to face Satan as one of us. And whoever wins takes all. It was quite something. And so humanity was waiting for this time because, you know, this was prophesied to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And for 4,000 4, years, this promise was passed on from generation to generation. One day, someone is coming to save us. And this day now had come. This is what Matthew was referring to. Notice how Jesus recognizes uh, the devil's position. John chapter 14 and verse 30. John 14 and verse 30. John chapter 14 and verse 30. Here Jesus says, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Who is the prince of this world? Satan. Well, how, how can Jesus refer to Satan as the prince of this world? Have you ever wondered about that? He doesn't say the enemy or he says the prince of this world. He's referring to Satan's position that he had stolen from Adam. And his uh, statement is really one of a challenge. He says, the prince of this world, the king of this world, he has nothing in me. In other words, Christ's work was to challenge and to win back that position from Satan. And this is what we were all waiting for, what humanity was waiting for. Amazing, right? For 4,000 years, humanity was in darkness under the shadow of death. What a, what a hopeless outlook if it wasn't for God's promise and God's intervention. Waiting for this glorious coming of the Son of God. Jesus also in John talks about when the Spirit comes, He convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And He says of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Do you remember that verse? The prince of this world, again, referring to Satan. He's going to be judged. Something is going to happen. There's, his position is going to be challenged. And uh, over in John 12, we're not far. Let's turn to John 12. Jesus spells it out. We're just seeing here this transition. And then we're going to see how this transition affects us today. John chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. John 12, verse 31 and 32. Jesus speaking and says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. What's Jesus talking about? When the prince of the world is cast out. Cast out of where? Cast out of his position that he had stolen from Adam. That's coming. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm taking him on. It's coming. And when he says now, what's he referring to? At what point or what event marks Christ's victory and winning back this dominion? He says it in verse 32, right? When he's lifted up from the earth, he will draw all men unto him. What's he referring to? To his death on the cross. That's why when he died on the cross, of course, he said it is finished. What's finished? This mission. What was prophesied? And part of what was prophesied was the restoration of the first dominion. So now he died as a man, having defeated sin and Satan as the last Adam. Now he earns the right to be the new representative. And the dominion is restored. And Satan is cast out of that position. Now the last Adam fills it. Praise God. That's what happened. At the cross, and of course, the events that very shortly followed. Because I want to mention this, sometimes we misunderstand. When we say the cross, the cross is really, in the New Testament, referred to as a package. The cross is not just the death of Christ. Uh, the death of Christ would have been futile if he had not risen from the grave. So when we say the cross, we're talking about the events that surround the cross. That is, his leading up to the cross bearing our sins on the cross, dying and rising three days later as a conqueror of death. So when we say the cross, we're not referring to the dead Christ. When we say the cross, we're referring to the victory that was accomplished on the cross, and we have a risen Christ. This is how it's used by Paul in the New Testament. So just keep that in mind, because many times we, look at, we say the cross, and we just 
focus our attention only on the event itself, the death, and that's it. But it's a package, okay? So just keep that in mind. So at this, uh, with this event, the prince of this world was cast out. Satan was defeated. Jesus destroyed him that had the power of death through death. But that would have been meaningless had he not risen. It's by his resurrection that he gained or obtained the keys of hell and of death. That's what he told John in the book of Revelation. He won back the kingdom from Satan and took over this position of representation. Now, this, this, this event was so uh, significant. It's actually recorded for us in the book of Revelation chapter 12. Let's go to Revelation 12. And this verse is one of the usually misunderstood verses in this context. But we want to read it together. Revelation chapter 12, and we'll read verses 7 down to 13. Revelation 12, verses 7 to 13. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Now, stop here for a minute. Question. What, what, what event or what time did this war happen? Most common answer is, this is when Satan was first cast out of heaven. All the way there at the beginning. Isn't that right? Not according to the context. It's not. The context, if you look at it carefully, you'll find that in the previous verses, it talks about a woman who stands on the moon, clothed with the sun with 12 stars as a crown. She, is, she has a child. She's about to give birth. There is a dragon standing ready to devour the child. The child is going to rule with a rod of iron. What's that talking about? The birth of Christ. Then it says her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What's that talking about? The ascension of Christ after he defeated Satan as a man. And then it says there was war in heaven. So the timing in the context of the chapter, the timing of this war, is something that happened in heaven after Christ ascended as a victorious human being. You with me? Now keep this in mind as we read, because hopefully you'll see something in the passage. If you didn't realize that before, you see something there that indicates or, or confirms what we're talking about. So we just finished verse 8. Verse 9, and the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Was there, a, was there a whole world to deceive when Satan was cast out the first time? Had Adam even fallen yet? No. So here, this is a casting out where there is a whole world to deceive. But let's carry on. That's, that's not the only indication. And then it says, verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. When did that happen? You see, the devil has been accusing the brethren day and night for 4,000 years. Now heaven is finally saying, finally this is over. No more. He is cast out of his position of being the representative of humans and going to heaven and having the right to accuse day and night. What has happened now is there is a new representative filling that position. So Satan is now barred from heaven again. Yes, as far as we understand, of course, as far as, as we go. Does that make sense? You see how the, the passage really, you miss these points when you just apply that all the way in the beginning. And you say, well, what, what brethren was he accusing before Adam even fell? There isn't really a good answer for that. And you miss the import of what happened in heaven when Christ went as a victorious human being. And then in verse 11, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore, rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. As a result of what happened in heaven here, when Christ went back as a victorious human being, the devil is now restricted to earth. And he is not happy about it. He is angry about it. So if you're having some trouble in your Christian experience, now you know why. He's not happy about his demoted position. He had a lot more advantages before Christ conquered him. 
Now there are limitations on him, and he's not happy about that. And so, you know, I picture it this way, and the devil will go up to, to, the, to the gate of heaven, so to speak, and try and gain access. The angels will be like, sorry, access denied. <laughs> we already have a representative for that world, the last Adam. And he comes back down, and he's angry. See, let me go find me some Christians and give them a hard time. That, that's what happens. And we're living at the very tail end of that time. That, that time where it says he has a short time. When did that short time begin? 2,000 years ago, right? You with me? 2,000 years ago. Now we're on the tail end of that short time. And so time is getting shorter and the devil is getting angrier. So that's why you can just picture the joy of, of the heavenly beings. They no longer have to hear the, accuse, the accusations of Satan against the brethren. Now they hear the second Adam and what he has to say and what he has to do for us and on our behalf. Uh, let's see what, uh, what else is uh, given to us. Uh, the qualification for, of Christ to be, our represent, uh, to be our new representative. Let's go to John chapter 1 and see what kind of work he does. Just so we can appreciate the meaning of what Christ actually accomplished for us and on our behalf. John chapter 1 and verse 18. <clears throat> it says in John 1 18, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. This is why Christ is the only one who could come. The Son of God is the only one who could come and be a man so that he can declare the Father. Because no, no man, no one, no creature, no being knows the Father like the Son knows him. And by the way, when it says here, uh, the only begotten Son, which is, sorry, which is in the bosom of the Father, that has confused some people, uh, where they say, well, how was the Son, when he was here on earth, at the same time in the bosom of the Father? You ever wondered about that? Well, well, he wasn't, because John is writing his gospel at what point in history? After Christ went back to heaven. So he's basically saying, the only begotten son, which is now in the bosom of the Father, which he is as a human being, he declared him when he was here on earth. You with me? So he's not saying Christ was having this puzzling, unexplained thing. He's basically emphasizing the fact that right now, the closest person to the Father who is in the bosom of the Father, is the Son who happens to be one of us. That's the position of the last end. He's saying this to encourage us. That's the position of Christ now. That's to give us, uh, you know, a great boost in our faith. That's the point. We were talking about this yesterday. In so doing, Christ has elevated the human race, the position and stature of the human race. It's a human being who is in the bosom of the Father now. You realize that? One of us. And he says that if we receive him, we become his children. He becomes our representative, and we have the benefit of all the work that he does. That's something we need to remember when the devil comes to bring us down. Because while the devil is limited from accusing the brethren in heaven, it doesn't mean he stopped accusing. He still does it on earth. He, he accuses us to ourselves. And he accuses us through maybe our brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, if you've ever had a brother or sister uh, make some uh, discouraging uh, comments to you or say some things that discouraged you or have an interaction that you found rather distressing and disturbing, uh, that's how the devil works many times. These accusations, particularly to ourselves, you know, the devil will trip you up and get you to fall and then accuse you to yourself. And say, look at you, you think you're a Christian? And just accuse. And sometimes these accusations can really bring us down. When we understand what happened, understand the position of Christ for us now, and Christ as our high priest, because this is what it means when he has, is the new representative. He's our new representative as our high priest. When we understand that, that's supposed to give us a boost in our faith so we can exercise our faith more firmly and more intelligently. When that's, you know, we talk about the sanctuary doctrine, right? And to many people, the sanctuary doctrine is believing there's a building in heaven. Really, well, that's, that's true, but it, it needs to be practical. It needs to be more practical than that. The sanctuary doctrine is all about the ministration that happens there. And the ministration is, is carried out by our, our high priest, who is a human, who is one of us. And when we realize that, as we should, it should give us 
great encouragement because we're dealing, brothers and sisters, with a defeated foe. Satan has been defeated by a human, not by some supernatural angelic being or some supernatural, by a human being to demonstrate for us that we, through him, can have the same thing. We're dealing with a defeated foe. That's what this is all about. The dominion has been won back as far as the right of representation. Then the kingdom will be established. You know, we're in a transition phase right now, but we need to understand what happened. And we need to have an intelligent faith about that. Hebrews 9.8, let me give you another boost to your faith. Well, the apostle will in Hebrews 9.8. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 8. We don't realize the advantage that we have. Hebrews 9.8, living in this side of the cross. Hebrews 9.8 says, the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. What's this talking about? It's actually a very heavy verse. Simply saying, the way into the holiest of all, the way into the heavenly sanctuary was not manifest. What's manifest mean? Made known, revealed, shown, obvious. It was hidden, right? Inaccessible. So long as the first tabernacle was yet standing. What's the first tabernacle? The earthly sanctuary. So get this. So long as the earthly sanctuary was standing and functional, humanity had no access to the heavenly sanctuary. The way there was not yet made. Manifest. How long was that uh, the condition for humanity? For 4,000 years. So the people that were living before the cross, according to this verse, and this says the Holy Ghost signifies it, according to this verse, they did not know the way into the heavenly sanctuary. They had no access. Why is that? Because who was the representative in heaven? Say, not, not a high priest. There was no human being to give us any rightful access into what is going on in the heavenly sanctuary and the benefits of that like we now have. So what happened on the cross? Christ earned the right. He defeated sin and Satan. He earned the right to become our new representative. He earned the right to become our, our high priest as a human. And now as a human, he goes into the heavenly sanctuary as our high priest. And now humanity has access to the sanctuary with a representative and a high priest who is on our side for a change. After 4,000 years of an enemy, now we have Christ. You see what happened? This is what this verse is talking about. And so because of that, God gave this earthly system to represent and to symbolize what would happen. And when, when the transition came about, of course, we know the story, the veil was rent in the sanctuary on earth, indicating this is it. Now we have access to the real thing. Because now we have a human who can give us that access. Notice what it says. Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 10 is what I want to go. Hebrews chapter 10. We were in 9. We just read that. But I want to link that verse with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. And just see how or, or understand how this impacts us today. Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20. It says... Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. That's what there was no access to before, right? The way into the holiest was not yet made manifest before the cross. So now it says we have boldness to enter into the holiest. How? By the blood of Jesus. That's what gave, gave access. That's what manifested the way into the heavenly sanctuary. Because he, this is the blood of Jesus as a human being. Jesus is his human name. You realize that there was no Jesus before the incarnation. I'm not saying Christ does not exist. The name Jesus is the name of the Son of God as a human being. He wasn't called Jesus before then. Remember the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus. That's his human name. The key point. So it's the blood of a human being. That's how we enter into the holiest. By a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And this confuses some people. This is his flesh. What does that mean, through his flesh? Well, what flesh did he have? Yeah, that was human. It's, it's, in other words, it says, when it says through his flesh, it means through his humanity. It's his humanity that now gives us a right 
to have an access in the very presence of God. One of us is there, a victorious one of us is there. And that gives us what? Boldness to enter there. Wow. Do we really realize what the sanctuary doctrine means, huh? This transition, brothers and sisters, is not something that's going to happen in the future. This has already happened. This is something that we need to realize, that we need to grasp a hold of, and know what it really means to have Christ, a human being, as our high priest. It is to give us boldness. We're dealing with the defeated foe. When we go out, you know, and meet the devil in, in the world, or at home even, and the circumstances that face us, you need to remember what happened. He hasn't forgotten, but he hopes that you and I will forget. And too often, we deal with him like this has not even happened. Isn't that right? And it's like, oh, the devil's giving me such a hard time, you know, and attacking me. I'm sure he is. But there is another side to the story. Have we forgotten that he's defeated and we have a new representative? He's in heaven. Have we forgotten? Sometimes we forget, right? Out of sight, out of mind. This is what we're used to in this world. So we can't see him at Christ. We can't see the heavenly sanctuary. It's out of sight. It might as well be out of mind. And oh, poor me, you know, the devil's really having a hard time, giving me a hard time. And, and we're like this miserable Christian who is just, you know, celebrating the victories of Satan. You know what I'm talking about? Have you met any Christians like that? Have we been like that? We just, you know, our testimony is like, oh, don't ask me how I'm doing, brother. Oh, and look, I'm not trying to belittle what you got. I know we go through a hard time. But the devil does his job to give us a hard time. But what I'm saying is that's not the end of the story. There's another part. Let's not forget that. Let us remember that and get that victory that Christ already obtained and apply it in our experience. This is what Christ did for us. Now, I want to share with you a couple of verses. I'm going to close with that. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Because this is something, I know we all struggle with this, and uh, and it's one of the hindrances for a revival, by the way. Romans 8, 34 is what we're looking at. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. It says here, Who is he that condemneth? What's the answer to this question? It's Satan. It's Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren, or he's the one that condemns. Now Paul gives the, the, the answer, not as to who condemns us, but the solution to when you're condemned or feel accused. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. This is such a complete answer, I don't want you to miss it. Paul is recounting all the steps that Christ went through to earn the right to answer the accusations of Satan. He says, it is Christ that died. It's through death that that happened. He rose again, and he is at the right hand of God. This is how Christ earned the right to be the representative for humanity, the last Adam. And this is the one who is making intercession for us. So instead of accusations day and night against us in heaven, the angels here, intercession. The intercession of our high priest. This is representative language in that what Christ is doing is now for us on our behalf. If we but realize that, brothers and sisters, it would give us boldness. It would give us confidence that even though we might be having a hard time, we might be having a struggle, we can see the bigger picture. The devil so many times tries to cloud our vision with so much trouble and trial that all we see is darkness. And we end up, uh, you know, fitting that description that we read in Matthew as if we're sitting in darkness and under the rain and shadow of death. It's like we're about to die spiritually. If some other disaster happens, that's it. I'm, I'm a gunner, I'm a gunner, you know? If this is your experience, I want to encourage you, look to your high priest. When the devil comes to whisper his condemnation and his accusations in your ear, here's what I want you to do. I want you to shout this verse in his ear. This verse right here we just read, all right? Romans 8:34. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Christ went to all of that so that you and I can have this courage, this boldness, this confidence, and this faith, knowing that we're dealing with a defeated foe. And the devil, remember something, the devil cannot give you any more trouble than God permits. You realize that? 
The devil can't just, you know, destroy you or kill you. So look, look at what happened with Job. But we're not where Job was, by the way. Job did not have a human high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Realize that? You and I do. Wow. You see, that, this is what I'm saying. We need to realize the advantages that we have available to us. And may it revive us, right? You know, as we realize, as we exercise that faith, the Spirit of God is to revive us, to be revived of that. So I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, whose dominion are you under? We're talking about Adam's dominion, right? Well, is it the first Adam or is it the last Adam? What you understand and what you believe and what faith you exercise determines the answer to this question. As Christians, we are under the dominion of the last Adam. That's how we should be. Hopefully today we understood a little bit more of the mechanics. Or maybe if you already understood it, maybe it's a refresher, a reminder of how all this works and practically applying that today. Let us have boldness, brothers and sisters, to enter into the holiest. Don't forget what's happening in heaven. Don't forget Christ earned that victory on your behalf and my behalf. And plead with the Lord. If you're having a hard time, plead with the Lord for that revival. That's what we're doing this weekend, right? If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.